On the spectrum of life, I'd like to ask, do you generally tend to take life too seriously or not seriously enough? Do you tend to take life too seriously or not seriously enough? Now, I assume you're sitting with some people you know. Look at the person next to you. And don't ask them the question. I know you're all fidgeting, but... Would they say that you take life too seriously or not seriously enough? Maybe that's fodder for the lunch table after church today. I know some of you are, you know, the guys are already like, oh, no, this guy has got me in trouble. But, um, you know, in, life in general is an interesting thing as we think about kind of the casualness with which we take life and yet at the same time the seriousness in, in which we can understand it, right? I don't fly very often, but a couple weeks ago or actually just a week ago, I, I flew on an airplane and there's nothing like flying on an airplane that for me kind of wakes me up to the reality of, of, of the, the fragility and seriousness of life. You know, you have like this 30-ton chunk of metal propelled by two jet engines 30,000 feet above the, the ground at, at 300 miles an hour. I mean, there's nothing like that for me, especially um, that wakes me up to the seriousness of life. Now, some of you fly all the time, and it probably feels like driving at this point. And what's interesting for me, though, is that every time I drive to the airport, there's probably a much more um, statistically real possibility that I could get hurt or killed on the drive to the airport than actually in the plane, right? And yet, When I'm in the plane, I get a perspective of the seriousness of life that I often don't get because of the normal, the normalness, kind of the commonness of driving every single day, right? When we do things over and over again, we we fail to see how serious it actually can be, right? I've seen these new campaigns for not texting while driving. They're very powerful. You see these people who are willing to talk about um, the damage that they've incurred because of, of just not taking the driving task seriously, texting while driving, and people get hurt and oftentimes killed. And our text this morning really starts to, to step into a, a very similar tension, a tension where we see the seriousness of everyday life. The seriousness of everyday life. If you have your Bible with you, or if you have um, a Bible in front of you in the pew, I would encourage you to open it. If you're, if you're taking a pew Bible, um, the, page, uh, the page number is uh, page 979, 979. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you that Bible. Um, if you don't have one, we'd love for you to take that as our gift to you. Um, we think that God's word should be in the hands of, of people, and so please feel free to take that. But as you turn to Ephesians 6, let me set up the text a little bit before we jump into um, our text. So the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians is writing to this church in Ephesus. Now, Paul had helped plant this church in Ephesus quite a while ago. At this point, Paul is probably writing from a, a prison uh, sentence in Rome, and he's writing to a church that he helped plant, that he spent over two years in the area surrounding Ephesus um, preaching the gospel and, and gathering a small group, a small cadre of believers, and then helping them think through who Jesus is and what he has done, and therefore how they should live in light of that. And as the gospel often does when it, when it bears fruit, is these little pockets of gospel people, of Jesus people, started springing up all around the area. So, so Paul's not only writing to a church that he helped plant, He's also writing to a group of people that he doesn't know. So if you read through Ephesians, there's these parts where he's talking to people he knows, it seems like, and there's also parts where he's talking to people he doesn't know. But he's talking about the serious of life in the everyday. 
Now, as we get to our passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, I'd like to start there. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. The Apostle Paul tells us in this passage that there is a very serious thing happening. There is a war happening around us at all times. There is a war currently being waged in us and around us at all times. And the big idea our text gives us is that there is armor for the Christian in this war of life. There is gospel armor in the war of life. So there's good news and there's bad news. Now, Definitions are important, and so I want to think through, I want to get the most important definition out there first. When I say gospel, I'm talking about good news, right? The gospel just means good news. But more pointedly, as this text, as we get into this text, the gospel is good news that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead victoriously over sin, over Satan, and over death. Now, if there's good news, then there must be what? Bad news, thank you. There must be bad news. Oftentimes when we have conversations with our son Owen, who's four, you saw him in the picture, he's probably running around somewhere. The blessing of not knowing that your kid will be in the service until you get there, you know, that is what we're living into to here. So we can do this together, right? All these kids run around, I've never done this before, it's a great joy. Um, But when we talk about the gospel with our son Owen, We kind of have this set of questions that we walk through to help him understand what the good news is, right? And so, um, you know, usually I'll say, so Owen, what is the gospel? And he'll say, good news. Amen. That's a good thing, right? And I'll say, who is this good news about? You know, who's this all about? The squirrel question, right? This good news is about Jesus. Amen. So what is this good news about Jesus? That he died on a cross to forgive sins. Amen. But if there's good news, then there must be bad news. And oftentimes we stop right there. We leave the bad news out of the picture because it's harder to talk about. We like to talk about the good news of Jesus, but if there's good news without bad news, then that news isn't very good. It's just news. It's just something that's happened. And then when I ask my son, so what is the bad news? He's learned over time that there is bad news, first of all. And the bad news is that we sin, that we disobey God. And so if there's good news, there has to be bad news. And this text plays into 
this reality of good news and bad news. So let's look at what it says about the bad news first. You know, start with the bad news first and then move on to the good news, right? Let's start with the good news, or excuse me, the bad news. So what is the bad news? The bad news is this, that there is a spiritual war. There is a war happening in us and around us at all times. I said it before, a spiritual war happening in us and around us at all times. And this war has a leader. This war has an enemy, I should say. And his name is Satan. Look with me at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is an enemy and his name is the devil. Oftentimes the Bible will call him uh, Satan. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul will say he is, he is the prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. You know, there's this, this job description of who, who Satan is. He's at work in the sons of disobedience, right? You know, I think of that movie, Kindergarten Cop. Any of you guys seen Kindergarten Cop? Okay, some of you have. Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, he goes through his kindergarten class and he says, who is your daddy and what does he do? Who is your daddy and what does he do? This is kind of that concept, Right? There's this job description of of who the enemy is and what he does. He's at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, in in the ancient world, when, when, when guys and gals finished up college or finished up undergrad, they didn't like immediately go on to college. They didn't, you know, they didn't finish their, their grad parties and go on and do the next thing, or they didn't go for a master's degree. Instead, they picked up the tool that their parent picked up. So a son would do what his daddy did. So when, when Ephesians, when Paul says in Ephesians that Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience, it's because their father is the disobedient one. His primary job description, his primary role in this world is to tempt people to disobey and disbelieve God's word. And what we see here, when you think, think back with me to Genesis 3. Think, you know, Satan is, is represented by this snake, and, and um, Adam and Eve, there's all these good, 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 good things, and then Satan shows up as the snake, and he says to Eve, he doesn't force her to eat the fruit. What does he say? He, he, he helps her think through that this might not be true, what God has said. He says, you know, did God really, did God really say don't eat that? Did he really say you'd die? And she started to disbelieve what God had definitely said. And she sinned, and Adam sinned, but he's the one who tempted them to do that, right? This is part of his, his job description. Now, we need to be clear. We need to be very clear that nowhere in the Bible is Satan portrayed as God's equal counterpart. Though, though the enemy is definitely God's evil counterpart, he is most definitely not his equal counterpart. Nowhere in the Bible is Satan presented as somebody who is, who is equal in power, who is equal in knowledge, who is equal in presence. Because all those things are given him by God alone. Amen? He cannot do all things. He cannot see all things. He cannot be everywhere all the time. Now, I know that that raises a very big existential question. So why does God allow him to be at all? <laughs> I'll let Bill deal with that later. You can talk to him. <laughs> That being said, I mean, it's not addressed in my text, so I don't have to deal with it. But let's be very clear. As Christians, we do not believe that there are two equal opposing forces of good and evil because we know that Jesus has died on a cross and been raised victorious over sin, Satan, and death. 
We know what happens in the end, and yet the battle still wages today. The war has been won, but the battle still wages to, today. So, there is an enemy in this war, and his, his role is to tempt. Second, in this war, this war is spiritual, not physical. This war is primarily spiritual, not physical. Look with me at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, that's enough. I'll stop there. This war is primarily spiritual. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't affect us physically. I, I need to say that. It definitely affects us physically. And yet, this war is primarily a spiritual thing. There's something deeper going on. There's something deeper down than just what we see or feel. So what does that mean? What does it mean that this war is spiritual? Well, I think the Bible would argue that this battle is being waged on the battlefield of hearts. And this war will be won or lost on the battlefield of your heart and on mine. That's what it means that it's spiritual. Look with me. This argument that's finishing up here at the last part of chapter 6 actually starts way back in chapter 4, verse 1. If you have your Bible, and I would encourage you to open it, go back to verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is, is starting this kind of new part of the argument and, and a bigger part of the argument that starts here, and he says, he urges the church at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then later in verses 17 to 24, he starts to talk about this, this new life that the Ephesian church has been caught up in, right? Where they put off the old desires, the old self, the old way of life, the old things, and they put on this new life that is bound up with Jesus, with what he has done and who he is. And then he goes through a series of relationships. At the end of chapter 4, he starts to address the most important social relationships for the people he's talking to. And he talks at the end of chapter 4 and into verse 5, he, he talks through the relationship between believers. So people in the church, right? The relationships with other Christians, essentially. And then at the end of chapter 5, he starts to talk through the relationship between wives and husbands, right? The marriage relationship. And then in chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 6, he starts to talk about the relationship between children and parents, right? The parental relationship. And then he talks be- about slaves and masters, right? Kind of this, this I mean, a slave is a, a real hard word in our, in our culture, and it's hard to diagnose. But this, this other relationship that was happening during this time, again, another thing I just can't unpack right now. But another relationship. And then there's our text. Now, Oftentimes, we read this text and we think, well, Paul's just kind of getting the rest of the things he needs to say into the, the book or something, right? But God never puts a passage, of, a passage of Scripture anywhere for no reason. There's no randomness to the order in which things are written. So we have to ask ourselves, when we get to this point in Ephesians chapter 6, why is this here? And I think the reason is, is because this battle, this spiritual war, is being waged on the hearts of us and those around us. The people in our families, the people in our marriages, the people in our homes, the people in our churches, the people that we do life with. This is where the war is being waged. I think that's why this passage is right here in our text. The spiritual war is happening in the lives and the hearts of those around us and in our own 
our own hearts. And so we have to ask ourselves, why don't we take this bad news seriously? Why don't we take this bad news seriously? And I think there's at least three reasons why. I'm sure there's thousands more. But three reasons why I don't think we take this, this bad news seriously. First is we might not believe that the spiritual war is happening. You might be sitting here today saying to yourself, you know, I'm just not sure about all this hocus-pocus spiritual stuff. I believe in what I can see, touch, taste, hear, feel. Fair enough. I understand that. It's hard to believe that there's something deeper going on. Maybe I can say a couple things. First, you would be in the vast minority historically of people throughout the ages. Historically speaking, the vast majority of people throughout time have believed that there is something deeper than just what you can see and feel going on. Even contextually or contemporarily today, the vast majority of people in the world today believe that there are forces for good and evil. Now, I'm not saying all these people are Christians. What I'm saying is most people believe in a spiritual realm and spiritual things, that there's something deeper happening. And the Bible, the Bible will always argue that something deeper is there. Now, again, that's not to say that, that the spiritual is all that matters because we know the Bible will say that God saves people, whole people, that we will be reunited with our bodies in a new heaven and a new earth reality. The spirit body will, will be reunited. So God's not just in the business of the spirit, but this battle is taking place at the level of the heart. Many of us might not believe in the spiritual things. But some of us might believe in the spiritual things. We might just not believe it's happening to us. If you're anything like me, I tend to think that this spiritual war is actually happening in, you know, mostly in third world countries or in uh, hyper-charismatic churches, you know, people flopping around on the ground and all these um, very, very, you know, spirit-filled things. And I, I tend to think that this spiritual war is all happening outside of the walls of my own home or my own church, But the Bible isn't saying that because if, as I said earlier, if Satan's primary job description, his primary role in this world is to tempt people to sin, then spiritual warfare is not happening out there. It's happening right here. It's happening within our churches. You read the New Testament. Paul isn't, well, you read any of the New Testament authors. They're not just saying, hey, just deal with the people outside of your walls. Most of what they're saying is, you guys are a bunch of foolish sinners. Start acting like Jesus is real. Many of us don't believe that the spiritual war is happening to us. Now, you might believe that the spiritual war is happening. You might believe that the spiritual war is happening to you. The third thing, you might not believe that the spiritual war is that serious. And that might be the gravest of all fallacies, that this war is not a serious thing. Because if God takes it seriously, then we are to take it seriously. And he takes it very seriously. It's not only here where, in Ephesians 6, where we, we hear about Satan's work in this world. It's littered throughout the pages of Scripture. So why do we struggle to take this seriously? Because we often don't believe it's happening, we often don't believe that it's happening to us, and we often don't believe it's that serious. So if there's bad news, we know that the Bible will always say there's also good news. So what is this good news that our text presents? Well, the good news is that the gospel, what Jesus has done on our behalf, both protects and defends us in the war of life. The gospel protects and defends us in the war of life. Paul kind of sounds like a spiritual drill sergeant in this text, doesn't he? There's all these commands. There's all these 
all these, you know, he says, he says, be strong, stand firm, stand, stand firm, stand, withstand, put on, right? You know, we're in marching ranks and we're ready for our orders and he's spouting off our mission orders and he's telling us to do all these things. He says, be strong because Jesus says that no longer is your strength wrapped up in yourself, but it's now wrapped up in who I am and what I've done, right? Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? He says, stand firm because now our standing is only in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Like the disciples in the garden, Jesus tells us to wait, to watch, and to pray because we're called to stand firm in this spiritual battle. And he says to put on the armor. And this is where the kind of the bulk of our text really goes, is to put on the gospel on a regular basis. He says the gospel protects us in the spiritual battle. Look at verse 14, and I'll I'll reread these real quick. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He says, put on the belt of truth because the gospel gives us this this new lens through which we understand all of reality. The Bible defines what truth is for us. He says, wear the breastplate of righteousness because those who believe in Jesus, no longer is our righteousness anything to count. That's a really bad sentence. Gosh, my English teacher would be so sad. No longer does our righteousness matter because we are unrighteous. But those who believe in Jesus, we now have his righteousness, right? 2 Corinthians 5 talks about him who didn't know sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, right? He says, put on the shoes with the readiness of the gospel of peace. We have these marching orders to take this good news of peace where God has reconciled people to himself through Jesus. The shield of faith. He talks about the helmet of salvation. He says, put on the gospel armor because it protects us. Now, these are all protective elements of armor, right? But he doesn't just say that it protects us, it also defends us. There's a, there's a protection element and a defense element. And he says to put on, well, maybe I'll just read it. I read it there a minute ago, but he says, take the helmet of salvation, verse 17, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I used to read this passage and never understand what that was saying. Uh, But when you boil it down to its most basic points, it's talking about prayer. It's talking about the word, the Bible, essentially. It's talking about the Spirit of God. So how are we supposed to understand this? And I think, you know, we get a picture of this with Jesus, We get a picture of this with Paul. How are we supposed to understand these three things? I think our gospel defense is spirit-backed biblical prayer. Where we, we actually pray what the Bible hopes for and what the Bible says, trusting that the Spirit will work. Now that doesn't mean trusting that the Spirit will necessarily do exactly what we want, but that the Spirit will work. I mean, think of Paul right after this passage in chapter 6. He doesn't say, hey, release me from prison. Pray that I get released from prison. He says, pray that the gospel might advance through me in prison. You think of Jesus in the garden, right? Or Jesus in the garden. Jesus 
Jesus in the desert. And what happens when Satan comes along, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who took him in the desert. And then Satan comes along, and what does he do? He, he, he answers Satan's wiles with, with Scripture. So I think our gospel defense has something to do with praying the things that the Bible has for us. Understanding what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. So I have a couple questions just to ask, you know, how, how, what does our prayer life look like? Most pastors will, you know, this is like the, the application easy sermon because it says pray, right? Pray, 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 pray. Well, I'm not going to tell you to pray more, but I want us to think through how do we pray? And maybe the first question I can ask is this. Who do you pray for? Are you praying for your kids? Are you praying for your spouse or your family members, your parents? Are you praying for those within your, you know, your, your social circles, your friends, uh, your coworkers, um, anybody else, neighbors? Do you pray for yourself? And maybe the second question I can ask is, what do those prayers look like? There's increasing um, research that shows most people in the world, many people, a huge majority of people pray. And the question maybe I'd like to ask is, do your prayers sound the exact same as theirs? Or is there something distinct about our prayers as Christians, where we understand that there's something more important than just the next job, or getting out from under your boss's thumb, or a grade in school? All important things. All things we should be praying for. And yet, our text here would say, are you praying that Satan would not have a stronghold in the heart of your son or your daughter? Do you pray that Satan would be kept at bay in your own heart, in the heart of your spouse? Or do your prayers sound very similar to your neighbor who's another faith tradition or whatever? Spirit-backed biblical prayer is our defense in this, this war of life. And so as we think through what this looks like next. There's a call here for all of us as, as a community of believers to stand firm, this language of stand over and over again, where we are to put on the gospel daily through, through prayer, through understanding what Jesus has done, and then praying that Satan would not have a vice grip on our hearts and the hearts of those around us, and that the real battle is being waged on hearts of, of ourselves and those around us, and we have to pray. We just have to keep praying. You know, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul had a very clear couple of passages in mind when he wrote this passage to the Ephesians. In um, Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 59, there's kind of this, this part uh, where Isaiah envisions, well, Isaiah, you know, speaking for God, sees that there's this chasm that's been created. There's this chasm that's been created because of God's people's sin against him. So God's people are over here and God is over here because God's people have sinned, creating this, this, this huge gaping hole. And Isaiah essentially says in chapter 59, he says, who's going to stand in this gap? Who's going to stand up for mercy and righteousness and the good things of God? And eventually God says, well, there's no man that will do that. But then Isaiah gets this, this picture, of this Isianic, or excuse me, this Messianic warrior this, this one who will put on the breastplate of righteousness, this one who puts on the helmet of salvation and stands in the gap. And there's this picture of Jesus. At Christ Community, we celebrate communion on a regular basis here at the Brookside campus. I believe we do it every week, and that's a good thing because we recognize that communion is this tangible, this, this physical way 
um, to celebrate what Jesus has done on our behalf.